Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. My Nardone's Welcome Me to the Kingdom opens with two migrants from Thailand's northeast who travel to Bangkok to make a new life for themselves in the bustling city. As they enter, they pass by a sign asking visitors to, quote, take home a thousand smiles. It's an ironic start to their lives in Bangkok as the two live an unstable, hardscrabble life on the city's fringes. P and Nam are just two a few of the characters that populate Minar Doan's short story collection, from a mixed-race daughter of an American-Thai couple to two stray boys jumping from job to job. Mai's characters try to carve a niche for themselves in a changing and sometimes unforgiving city. Mai Nardone is a Thai and American writer whose fiction has appeared in American short fiction, Granta, McSweeney's Plowshares, and elsewhere. He lives in Bangkok. Today, Mai and I talk about Thailand, the difference between its public hospitality and the unstable lives of the migrants that live there, and how authors should think about writing this about this Southeast Asian country. So, Mai, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, I, I want to start with that with that opening scene of P and Nam kind of passing under a sign asking visitors to take home a, a thousand smiles, which contrasts, I think, to the to the very difficult lives of many of the characters um, in your short story collection. Um, why did you want to draw this contrast between Thailand's kind of public facing kind of uh, land of hospitality and, you know, the actual difficulties of, of those that live in Bangkok? Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me here, Nicholas. Um, yeah, I, the the prologue is sort of something that came to the collection after it was already put together, and it was it was a way to sort of frame how we're going in. And like you said, that um, that line, which is from a Tourism Authority of Thailand poster that existed in I think the late '80s or maybe the early '80s, um, is meant to kind of draw an ironic message and draw attention to the the sort of the the dual mythologies of Bangkok, right. Or, or sort of its public perception. And it's, so one is its perception within the country as this hub for opportunity and money. And it, Thailand does have one of these vastly unequal um, development structures where a lot of historically, a lot of the public money went into the capital. And so the capital is where people go for opportunities. And so there is, there is this pull of people coming from the provinces towards the city looking for opportunities. And then the the tourism slogan is kind of the other side of it is like what Bangkok and Thailand in general holds is a promise for um, international tourists and international travelers, whether expats or not coming to um, coming to Thailand. And so as the prologue was kind of playing off these two mythologies about Bangkok and, um, and setting up these expectations about what kind of city they think they're coming into, and then the reality of the city um, as it plays out in the later stories. And just for the for the slogan, it came from when I was growing up. Um, my dad's American, my mother's Thai, and he had um, he had a couple of these these old I don't even know where he got them these old Tourism Authority of Thailand posters, and they were kind of right outside my bedroom door. And so every time coming up the stairs before I went into my room, I would look at. I would look at these posters and I think it was a beach or something. And the other one had like exotic fruit and it, and yeah, the slogans kind of went along these lines and it's just something like indelible that stuck with me since then. 
you know, the 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 stories in your collection kind of cover, um, you know, decades of, of history, including kind of the, the 97 financial crisis, which I, I, I want to ask about is it, kind of the turning point, I think, for a number of of characters um, in Welcome Me to the Kingdom. Uh, you know, what actually kind of happened in, in Thailand during the 97 crisis? Yeah. Um, so the 97 crisis, I, in college, I was an economics major. And so um, it's something that I went back, you know, at the time of the 97 crisis, I was maybe eight years old. And so I don't have the understanding that the character who's in one of the stories, who's also mixed race, um, who's a teenager at the time of the crisis kind of has as things are playing out. And so a lot of my perspective and my um, my thinking about the crisis is all retrospective. And that includes when I was in college studying economics and um, looking at this financial crisis. And the economic story of the crisis is one of, um, there. there's kind of conflicting views on this, but I, I think the general one is like a credit bubble, which was funded by um, the US and all this foreign money coming into Thailand because of a fixed exchange rate and good, um, good a good interest rate you know promise returns on their investments and so a lot of um what at the time i think the imf and the world bank was calling like the asian financial um or the asian economic miracle or something like that and it was like southeast and east asia all these economies that were growing at like 10 percent or something and they um, they pointed to it as kind of a uh, an example of the success of like that 90s economic liberalism that the world Bank and the IMF were pushing and the U.S. was pushing at the time. And so a lot of this money is coming into Thailand um, and local companies are taking on, you know, this foreign money and they're investing in it. It's also the time of the IT boom and a lot of their money is dollar denominated. Um, and then in the middle of all this, the economic con conditions change. There was... Um, like the credibility of the currency peg of Thailand's bot to dollar came into question. And then at some point with all these changes, um, the Thai central bank couldn't hold the exchange rate anymore. And then almost overnight, like the bot devalued by something like 50%, all this money went back out of the country a lot faster than it came in. And um, Thai businesses, middle-class Thais kind of, upper class ties were left holding all this debt that was suddenly twice as expensive because it was dollar denominated. And um, I think the the stock market fell something like 75% during this period. And so um, it's just this, this moment of like huge, a huge swing from economic opportunity for the middle and upper classes to um, really dire straits. And um, in my mom's family, especially, it was kind of a, a make or break moment where um, her brother had started a business, an IT business that was um, that had some of this money that had these loans that were dollar denominated. My dad at the time worked for a Thai company, and he and he did later. And it was it was just this moment, I think, for that generation where they were all looking around, wondering whether or not they would make it out of this. And for my mom's family, largely, in fact, it didn't. Like my her brother went into kind of you know bankruptcy for a decade. Um, and never, never managed to recover into a stable job. And so when I started this story collection, I knew that this was going to be kind of the, the cataclysmic event that happens in the middle of the story. And I wanted something that the rest of the collection could revolve around. But um, yeah, and so that that was why that was like an important kind of pivot in the middle. I mean, this is a good segue into kind of 
my next set of questions because 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 one of the one of the families that that's affected by nice Have crisis is this uh, is this mixed family um you know the the american father the the thai mother and and their and their mixed race daughter um which kind of helps i think upend how the family is living you know i think there are a few expat characters in your story there are a few mixed race characters in your story so in 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 your short stories and i wonder if you could you know talk about more how you wanted to kind of write those characters i mean first expats you were kind of passing through and then leaving um and then kind of the mixed race characters who are kind of trying to balance these different these different worlds mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think that um i mean as as the 97 example points out like it's so so i'm also mixed race my dad's american like i said my mother's thai um but I think that it would have been like Thailand is always even, you know, back when it was Siam, even during its, its uh, period when the capital in the olden days when the capital was up at Ayutthaya before the Burmese came in and sacked that. And this new dynasty was set up around Bangkok. Um, it was always a very cosmopolitan country in terms of like trade routes and trade coming through. And um, and so I felt like it would be disingenuous to try and write um, a book like I think that a book that is authentically Thai necessarily has to reckon with the impact that foreigners have on the country, and so um, and even if we think of um, the the kind of the prologue again, and and these sort of dual images of Thailand of like um, a tourist country, and as the collection gets into a country that has a lot of sex tourism and has a big sex industry, um, and a lot of that sex industry came up around the U.S army bases as happened in the Philippines and other country um, during the Vietnam war. And so the legacy of kind of like Western tourists coming to Thailand and the sex industry and, you know, foreign intervention in the region, it's all kind of bound up together. And so I knew right away, also just because of my identity that um, I would have to write foreigners into this world. And I think that writing in English for mostly, you know, like a, a non-Thai audience um, because I'm writing in English um, and being published in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, it I, I felt like I was in a good position to bridge that divide between foreign and Thai and English and Thai. Um, and so that's why there are these mixed race characters who are kind of caught at these own intersections. Um, and in the case of um, one of the main mixed race characters that you mentioned, Lara, who's the daughter of a Thai man and a foreign woman, um, or sorry, <laughs> a foreign man and a Thai woman. Um, it's it's kind of working through a lot of the mixed kind of perceptions around mixed identity here. Like um, uh, Thailand, again, we have a lot of these parallels with the Philippines and other countries, but a lot of the celebrities are mixed race and most often they're half white. Um, sort of famously or maybe infamously recent, maybe up until last year, recent uh, Miss Universes which is a huge, huge kind of pageant in Thailand that I think um, one of the media moguls just bought. Um, it's been dominated by like half Thais, half Swedish um, representatives. And um, and if, you, if you're on the SkyTrain, if you're watching Thai TV, a lot of the young celebrities are also mixed race. And it's because these qualities like fairer skin, like, um, you know, like a... a more pointed nose bridge or whatever things that I bring up are qualities that are seen as um, desirable. And so 
there's sort of that aspect to mixed race identity. But then there's also the other aspect of that. A lot of these mixed race children come from um, families that have a lot of imbalances, partly because of age differences sometimes between their parents. Sometimes it's an income inequality thing. Um, often women who are marrying foreigners are, and, and this part is like usually very transparent, like nobody has any pretenses about this, but are marrying into opportunity, right? So they're poor women from the Northeast um, who are marrying foreigners because of their, whether they have foreign income, maybe it's an opportunity to move to a country like Sweden or something like that. And so it's the the mixed race kind of characters were an opportunity to kind of deal with all these cross currents um, and to look at some of the influences of foreigners in the kingdom. You know, you, you do mention the the sex industry, um, and I think a lot of your a lot of your characters, I think especially um, the female characters, live lives that are um, adjacent to sex work. Um, if they are not, uh, if if they are not kind of sex workers themselves, um, you know, I mean, how 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 difficult is it to kind of write about that industry in in Thailand and, and to do it in a way that seems I'm trying to think of, of it. I, I guess it maybe tries to avoid some of the more problematic elements of writing about, I guess, sex work, especially mm-hmm. in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's also, um, I, maybe, maybe resentment is the wrong word. There's, there is the sense, I think among English speaking Thais who might read this book who are, you know, often foreign educated and come from like the upper classes uh, because they can afford that, whether it's an international school, whether it's just being sent abroad. Um, there's a sense that I'm, I'm sort of perpetuating um, stereotypes about the country that, that Thailand is like a hub for sex tourism that, you know, people are just coming here for, to go to Pattaya, which is a city that is almost just like entirely founded on, the sex industry um but so so for me when i was thinking about this there were i guess one of the things that i was thinking of as i was writing for a foreign audience was how thailand exists already in kind of like the public international imagination and so and because not that much has been written about thailand in english um it fiction wise um a lot of that perception comes from either people visiting the country or from films and films are often things like um, like famously the beach or um, this more niche movie with Ryan Gosling, only God forgives the hangover too. And it's, it's sort of like foreign characters coming to Thailand because there's something exciting or quote unquote exotic. Um, and that exotic excitingness is bound up in a sense of peril or danger. And one of my friends, actually James, you who used to live here uh, wrote a great essay on this for, um, for the Mekong review where he talked about um uh, English language writers, foreigners writing stories set in Thailand, and how they all they all kind of played with this this tension between the exotic and the dangerous, and how it's all bound up together. Um, and so that, given that that is the public image or the image of Thailand that exists in, in the imagination, I felt like I had to reckon with um, the sex industry as I was writing this. And and so part of it is is sort of addressing that, and the other part of it is is almost a correction because. Um, that that image as it exists globally isn't necessarily representative of the way that the sex industry is in Thailand, which is actually that most of it is Thai facing. And so 
even though for foreigners, it's sort of this like sex tourism country in Thailand, it's actually, you know, most of, I, I like we grew up, um, I grew up on the outskirts of Bangkok and we would drive into town um, just once a week to go to this Italian restaurant every mm-hmm. Sunday. And it was just, just this family thing. The one meal we had out and driving into town, um, we would go down Petbury Road, which apparently in the 70s was known as the Golden Mile. And this was one of the neighborhoods where um, the American soldiers came on R&R. And that's why a lot of these um, sex parlors kind of sprung up around there. And it's this unusually wide thoroughfare in in a city of like famously very narrow and kind of windy streets. And it's because the Americans were using it. And so they had widened it. And if you go down there today, there are still these huge concrete windowless buildings um, that are these, you know, quote unquote, like massage parlors, but they're, um, they're around sex work and all of them are geared towards the Thai. Yeah. It's the same way where if you go to any town in Thailand, any city in Thailand, um, it's impossible to kind of escape, um, the sex industry. And so it was it, part of it was like correcting that image of like, actually a lot of this is, is within Thai society itself. And it doesn't have anything to do with the foreigners. And, and the other part was, was trying to write into the sex industry from, um, from more of a Thai perspective, whereas a lot of what already exists is coming from the outside. I'd like to, I'd like to, to, to pivot here, um, to a different question. And, and there's a, we have a great way to, um, to actually move to my next question, um, which is, uh, I'd, I'd, I, I'd like to ask you maybe to do a short, a short reading, um, for maybe the beginnings of one of your short stories. Um, if, if you may. Yeah. Um, this is from the beginning of Handsome Red, um, which is about the the cockfighting or the rooster fighting industry, which is still huge in Thailand and huge in Southeast Asia. Um, so the story is called Handsome Red. I've tried every idol. I'm not proud of it. I've prayed to the colorful faces at the Hindu temple and the stern ones at the Chinese. I've knelt to monks and bowed before big men. I took a bus south to visit that fat asshole with the prophetic doll. My name is carved in an Anthakian tree. I fed strays and released sparrows. I even slaughtered a small, sickly pig. I've given my time to the temple, my blood to the hospital, my pay to the state lottery. What else? I asked a fortune teller. He turns over my charts. More. If the monks are right, the bad, life, the bad luck precedes this life. And if the monks are wrong, where does that leave me? While I'm sharing the blame, let me add to my list. Bright, the smarmy whore behind this big idea. And this big idea himself, handsome red, rooster of legends, multi-million baht fighting cock of a yutia. I'll admit that when I saw the chicken, I saw money too. A white-tailed yellow rooster, the breed of the warrior king Nariswan. How could this not be a winner? Handsome's red, handsome red's breeder had started selling his offspring. Chicks for 8,000, ring-ready roosters for 20, more than a month's wages. That's where Bright came in with his golden fucking eggs. Maybe I'll just stop there. Um, so the reason why why um, why why I asked you kind of before this interview to, to read that is that it's a, it's a good segue to kind of talking about a few other characters in your book. Um, I think that that story features um, Tintin. Uh, Benz is another, uh, I think, related character. Um, and these two are 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 stray boys um, who kind of they're kind of jumping from job to job, jumping from opportunity to opportunity. Uh, none of them work out that well, I think, especially in this story. Um, but I wonder if, if I might ask you to talk about 
those characters who um who again we kind of track throughout the story collection um as we see them try to make a life for themselves um yeah yeah um i mean so so this story um is about um cockfighting chicken fighting which is um still still huge kind of in the provinces i mean even in, in bangkok on the outskirts but um you go to any any kind of uh, neighborhood or small town in rural Thailand and you will hear roosters and you will hear roosters because so many of the farmers are using this as kind of a pastime or whatever. And actually during the, um, during the pandemic or well, shortly after the pandemic, but during the pandemic is when I started writing the story and I was on YouTube watching these videos of um, one particularly successful chicken reader and he just has these kind of tip, you know, YouTube videos of like, how, how should you feed it? How should you train it? Nutritional, whatever. And um, my girlfriend is a journalist and I'm sort of her in, informal fixer. And so whenever she, whenever I find these things, I kind of give it to her. And then we go out there and I'm like her interpreter and she does the reporting um, and I get to snoop. And so we ended up in the case of this story and um, and a related story, we ended up going to the farm that this is that this chicken is based off. And actually, and even though this is contemporary and this story is set um, a number of years ago, um, it's kind of amazing that this man he's you know it's it's in the middle of nowhere in the countryside, and you suddenly come across this huge, massively lavish house, um, and there's this guy who's telling me the story, and he you know he grew up on a farm, he grew up with nothing. Um, started making money just like running errands for people who were around cockfighting rings and um, and then got into it himself. And the way that these birds are valued is that um, when they fight, each each party gives half of the winnings. So, you know, like a thousand baht or something. And so the winnings is 2,000. So the bird that wins that fight is then worth 2,000 baht according to the rules. And so this man as it stands right yeah. a year ago holds the most expensive rooster in the world probably and it's something like two million dollars um which is how much you want in a fight with this chicken and so he uses that fame um to then sell offspring um and so we went up there and they're shipping something like 50 birds a day um in these cardboard boxes with holes in them all over southeast asia because of course it's almost like a sports team like people have jerseys and everyone wants to be a part of this and for a lot of um you know they see this man who's making millions and they see it as an opportunity especially during the pandemic when so much was shut down people were people in the city were going back to the provinces and looking for ways to earn money and then um there are all these um i guess these schemes like this and this this is like the like you said a lot of a lot of these these stories and these schemes for these characters don't turn out well. And I think that part of that was trying to be true to kind of the economic realities of Thailand. And it felt disingenuous to write a book where the characters, you know, enter a a fighting ring with a rooster and they come out on top or something like that. Because the truth is that, you know, the man who is fighting roosters, for example, is making most of his money selling birds to other people. And it's the same way that lottery culture, which is a state lottery, there's only one, is um is just huge in thailand like it comes out twice a month at the beginning of the month and in the middle of the month and on those days it's sort of all that everyone who's in a middle or lower class is talking about they're like oh did you see the numbers came out um and there are different tiers of prizes and so it feels like there's kind of this like trickle down of the prizes where 
even if you're not winning something, you might win like a thousand baht or 5,000 baht. And it's enough just to keep you hungry in the system. And I feel like that is a good metaphor for the economic opportunities. And so always when I was writing these characters, Tintin and Benz and sort of in the beginning, they call themselves stray boys because they're not, um, they're orphans and they don't have parents, but there's, there's always some sort of scheme. There's always some sort of um, opportunity that doesn't quite pan out for these types of people who, despite working and despite trying to play by the rules are, are undermined by the fact that wealth is like hugely, hugely concentrated in Thailand and the opportunities that come to the middle and lower classes are, you know, are like the lottery are like these magical, um, this, like this chicken, which is like a, you know, magic beans or something. And even in the case of Tintin, he describes um, growing up in a, in a Muay Thai gym, a Thai boxing gym, which is another common vehicle for poor kids, especially boys. But now that's changing so that girls can get into it as well to get out of the lower class where they try to get into boxing. And there's potentially like a lot of money around that, but it's also a very competitive, very brutal sport. And um, a lot of them burn out and some... Um, and there are these these like informal families, like the one that Tintin is a part of in the boxing gym, where they're they're basically taken in. They're you know they board there, they eat there, they train there. The coach is like their dad, and then all their winnings goes back to this man, and the man sort of like gives it back to them as pocket money or whatever. And um, and they try and make it big. Um, and so this story and some of the other ones were just trying to reflect that economic reality and forever like. Benz and Tintin are getting themselves into something that they think is going to pay out and it never quite does until the final story, which is about um, the emergency EMT sort of a world that exists in Thailand, which now now it's much more standardized. But 10 years ago, when this story was said before that, it, it's, it's like an entirely volunteer force. And it's often people with little or no training and they would just kid out their pickup trucks or their minivans or whatever and they would just go out at night sometimes it was a family activity celebrities have been known to do it and they would just wait on street corners often for accidents because thailand has one of the highest road fatalities in the world um and they would just you know pick up people and bring them to hospitals often people in motorbike accidents and um and they would do this in order to earn kind of karmic merit um and so that's what, by the end of the story collection, Benz and Tintin are doing, because they've sort of tried all the other schemes to make this life work for them. And then feeling like, you know, the cards are still stacked against them. They're now trying to bank for the next life, which is another kind of um, way that the state um, feels like it, it, it like promises future rewards in this pie in the sky kind of way. You know, I, I'd like to kind of pivot now to kind of talk about the actual kind of act of putting this collection together um you know it's a collection of short stories but as you mentioned you know they they all work together to kind of create a single or at least kind of a few different narratives um these characters grow they have children they interact with each other um you know how did you decide uh which which stories to tell and then kind of how to i guess order them in this in this in this collection yeah um i think we ended up, this is a kind of a discussion that I had with my agents when we were um, collecting the stories that came into this collection. And we ended up um, making it mostly chronological. And there are three main storylines. There's 
sort of this mixed race daughter and her parents. Um, they're the two stray boys. And then there's this other fam- other family that involves like an Elvis impersonator and this tri- Thai Chinese girl who comes from sort of the lower middle class and manages to go to university abroad and then come back. And so she's the only one who's kind of moving up in economic opportunity. But, um, but so most of it is chronological and just sort of like dipping into these people's lives at, at different points. And I think that um, in that sense, it is a story collection because each, you know, story, each chapter is self-contained. You can read it independent of the rest of the collection, but the idea was to give a larger picture of these people's lives if people are reading through the collection. And so a lot of it is chronological. A lot of it was about like bookending um, certain character arcs. And one of the few moments where it wasn't chronological was near the end when um, when one of the characters who we started off with, Nam and, and, um, and P actually, who she comes to the city with, um, we go all the way back in time before the collection starts to their childhood, just to see kind of like the catalyzing moment, the the events that like set them on this path, um, which is another story of kind of economic precarity. And it's about food and it's about um, these two characters who had sort of a lot of hope and wanted to learn English. And, and it's the hope that that kind of carries us into the prologue that we got at the beginning um yeah and then and then besides that it was sort of about like shuffling um these these characters so that you would have natural breaks in the story collection that kind of um between between the same character so that um so that it felt like time was passing or so that if we had a character who was in a first person in one story and he comes back later in the third person it didn't feel jarring to kind of switch between those um, and I think that as the collection moves forwards in time, we get to see the way that Thailand is changing as well. So from like the 80s um, through the 97 crisis into the early 2010s, when um, people are online, people are on, you know, there's selfies and there's, there's, um, we get into the world of like skin whitening and advertising and kind of these B-list models who are, who are half white, half Thai. Um so the ordering was just trying to kind of capture capture that period. Now I think for my for my last question, I kind of want to and 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 we've kind of talked about this a little bit through our conversation already. But you know, it, it seems like there are, there are these kind of two stereotypes of Thailand. Um, you know, there's the land of smiles, hospitality, the the exotic um, descriptions of of Thailand. Uh, and then there are those which kind of really focus on the, the on the vice aspects of it. Um, oftentimes, these stereotypes feed into each other. Like Thailand is exotic because it is um, a hub for vice and sex tourism and all that. Um, you know, is is there is there a better way you think to kind of to to write about the country and to so, so, that, so that you don't kind of fall into either. Um, into either stereotype or either one of these um, problematic narratives. Yeah, yeah. Um, I th- I think what you're saying is right about um the stereotypes feeding one another in that um they they are they are kind of just the two sides of the same coins, right? Mm-hmm. Like Land of Smiles is what the Tourism Authority of Thailand is pushing at people, and the other side of Land of Smiles is you know Pattaya. It's like Sin City or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so. I, I think those those things are really bound up together. I think that 
and again, to go back to this, this essay that my friend James wrote that, um, the conclusion that he sort of comes to is if, if you're coming to the country, whether from a writing perspective or just as a tourist and you're looking for vice, then vice is what you'll find. Right. Um, and it's about sometimes if you are writing those stories, which is what I was trying to do here is that you're trying to write it from the inside out instead of the outside in. And so like a lot of what I was doing and there's, there's a lot of great sort of, um, local magazines and, and writers around this, but, um, there's one magazine called a day, a Thai magazine. And they, um, they, they did this one issue that was just about sex. And they talked to these NGOs that work in the sex industry and they had a podcast component. They had like, um, paper, you know, on paper in the magazine interviews. And it was just really fascinating to, to read, um, the perspectives of these sex workers, former sex workers, people who are working adjacent to the sex industry about the kinds of stories that come out of this and sort of the realities as well. And one of the realities is that like for a sex worker working, you know, in like a downtown Bangkok, foreign centric, foreign facing um, place, they can make a lot more money here than a lot of people do in the office buildings right next door. And so it's about like providing economic opportunities. If we want to change this model, legalization, whatever. Um, And at the same time, it's obviously not, not the only side of Thailand that there is. And there is um, English language fiction, obviously, that is that is now coming out and in translation that is not about this. Um, in, in fact, my sister, Sunisa Manning, was on this show. I think you interviewed her as well um, a few years ago when her story, which was about this 1970s kind of student uprising and these three characters, um, Hey, wait, that, I did, I did, that, I did interview Sun- Sunisa Manning about that book. Yeah. Wait, our, um, um, yeah, she's my older sister. Um, wow, yeah, I had no uh, idea. That's <laughs> yeah. What a what a great connection. <laughs> yeah, um, she's. I mean, she uh, she changed her last name because she's married. Um, but otherwise, the connection would be kind of easier to make. Um, but she, you know, she is very good about, as in that story, like writing about um, these super influential, I guess, families and like those royalist circles. And and she has sort of like three archetypal characters, like a Chinese character, a sort of more middle class average Thai, and then like a super elite, um, you know, descendant of royalty kind of character. And and there's that. There's... um. Um, there's a lot more in translation now, um, more translators and just, um, more being translated. I think there's more of an appetite in the West tilted access, tilted access press out of the UK, I think is, is particularly good about, um, translating more things. And so there's more, um, there's more of this sort of experimental literature coming. And, and I think that as hopefully at some point there's some kind of critical mass that that starts to change the the perspective and to change the bookshelf of when you go into you know your kinokuniya or wherever you buy books here and you look at the the local selection that's in english it's not just thrillers um written by foreigners that are about you know some bar girl with a razor blade or something like that um and so i think time time is also and as more voices are being added to this is is already changing um the the modes of writing that are coming out of thailand 
Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Mai Nardone, author of Welcome Me to the Kingdom. Uh, Mai, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where mm-hmm. can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might the next project be? Um, yeah, where can they find my work? Um, I mean, if if listeners are in a place where there are independent bookstores, then independent bookstores are great. Pretty much everything I've written so far is collected in this story collection. If not independent bookstores, like in Bangkok, you know, there is Kino Kuniya. Um, and next, I am um, working on a novel, um, which is part of the same kind of contract with, um, with Random House and Atlantic Books. And it's looking at the other side of society, so kind of like contemporary, super rich ties. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it it's going to be lighter just because it's a little easier to satire the very rich and privileged so i look forward to to hearing more about it um you can follow me nicholas gordon on twitter at nick r i gordon that's n-i-c-k-r-i-g-o-r-d-o-n you can go to asianreviewbooks.com to find other reviews essays interviews and excerpts follow on twitter at book reviews asia that's reviews plural and you can find many more auth interviews at the new books network and newbooksnetwork.com the Interview Books Podcast on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Join us next week for a conversation with Camille Ahmed, author of I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Overseas and Rivers. But before then, my thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you.